my grandparents, who I actually talked about a little bit last week at this point in the message, my grandparents emigrated from the Netherlands to Canada in 1948, right after the war. And uh, for those first years, they lived in a basement suite underneath a lady who was fairly hard of hearing. And my opa, that's my grandpa, my opa was quite used to having to raise his voice in order to be understood by their landlady. One day, she was having a particularly hard time understanding him, though. And he wondered if, well, I, I don't know his thoughts, but I wonder if he wondered whether her hearing had gotten much worse overnight. So he kept repeating himself, getting louder and louder and getting closer and closer to her until finally he was inches away from her face, yelling at the top of his lungs into her very bewildered eyes. And that's when he realized he had been speaking in Dutch the entire time. <laughs> there were other times my opa would absentmindedly slip Dutch words into otherwise normal English sentences. Uh, one of the Dutch words for a cold is cow. And uh, one day at church, he heard the pastor's wife coughing. And he went up to her with a look of great concern and said, Mrs. Ollie, you have a cow on your chest and I don't like the sound of it. <laughs> once again um, met with fairly bewildered expression. Uh, those, those, even though we laugh, those were, those were difficult years for my grandparents. I mean, my, my opa was brilliant. He was a physicist, double PhD, really smart guy. And yet learning a new language was hard, and they were very out of place. They felt very out of place in their new country. Language is easily one of the most powerful forces in, in human relationships. Without a shared language, it's almost impossible to have a relationship with someone. Nothing can bring people together like language. And nothing, as my grandparents and many of you have, have, have experienced, nothing can keep people apart like the lack of a shared language. And if we start to ask, where did all this come from? Where did all this start? These language barriers that, we, that keep people apart. We get very different answers. Modern wisdom would tell us that different languages, like everything else, develop slowly and gradually over a very long period of time. Because that's the answer for everything, right? Once again, the book of Genesis gives us a very different story. And it's very interesting. If you actually track with some of the scientific discussions today, uh, the existence of language is one of the, the strongest arguments against Darwinian evolution. Because language is so, human language is so other than anything in the animal world. Okay? Animals squawking and purring at each other. Human language is so different. It's such a, a leap above everything else that, that, that more and more scientists are saying there's no way this could have arisen gradually. There, there's something huge that happened here. And when we look in the Bible, we see that language itself comes from God who spoke and created. And we see that the existence of different languages arose not Gradually, although there surely is development within languages, but these different languages arose suddenly by a sudden act of God. And God did this for a very specific reason. And he did this as part of a bigger plan that directly impacts each one of us in the room this morning. So we're going to turn to Genesis 11, where we discover the genesis of languages. And as you see from the outline that you got in your bulletin, we're going to walk through this passage in four big steps this morning. And, and the first step is the background in verses 1 to 3. 
There's a few smaller points here about in this background. Verse 1 sets the stage by telling us that when this account took place, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Okay, there you got wonderful Hebrew repetition. One language, same words. Saying the same thing twice. And this would make sense if everyone descended from a single family coming off the ark. Of course, they would have all spoke the same languages. So the same language, rather. And, and that helps set the stage. So this probably, by the way, takes us back. Remember last week, we, we looked at chapter 10 all at once, and, and we saw the, the, the nations descending from Noah through Ham, Shem, and, and Japheth, or Japheth. And, and there was a statement in there about, about someone named Peleg, and in his days, the earth was divided. That's probably a reference to what's happening here. So this probably takes place about halfway through chapter 10. Second point here, as we look at the background, is a settlement in Shinar. Verse 2 tells us as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. It's interesting, there's a bit of a biblical theme here of going east that that has a, a bit of an ominous sound to it, connected to the Garden of Eden and leaving Eden. So already there's a little bit of a question there. Going east is not always viewed as the best thing in the big story of the Bible. It's a little cue. And, and we know from chapter 10 that Shinar was the land that was settled by Nimrod, the son of Cush, the son of Ham. So it's fair to assume that these people mentioned here settling in Shinar are from the troubled line of Ham. And they found this open place between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers and they settled there. Third step in the background is a new building technology. Uh, these people discover or, or invent a new building technology. And they, verse 3, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So this is a big development. And this, this actually had to be explained carefully because the, the people reading this first, the people of Israel, were used to most construction happening by stone. You, they, they had lots of stone. They would quarry stone, cut stones, and build buildings out of these stones. But in this big open plain in the land of Shinar, they didn't have that. So how do you build stuff? Well, they figured out that if you take mud, which had clay in it, clay is the important stuff, and you bake it either by letting it bake in the sun or by actually baking it in an oven, which was more it made better brick but was more expensive and took longer you get a brick that was pretty much like stone and brick was actually super important in, in the legends of the people living in this area mesopotamia uh the 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 kings were often involved with in with the manufacturing of bricks the first brick in a building was really important bricks were really important to them because they didn't have stones and we see here that these people do what humans do, right? They didn't have stones, so, so what do they do? They invent, they, they innovate, they discover. So what God made us to do, God told Adam and Eve, have dominion over the earth. And here we see them doing that, taking the raw materials that God provided and, and, and figuring out ways of doing new things with it. There's a word for that. That word is technology. We just before Christmas did a Sunday school class, six weeks of adult Sunday school on this idea of technology. And it's, 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 a, it's a good thing. In, at least it, it, it can be a good thing when people do this, figure out ways of, of building things out of the, the material that God has made us to do. But as often happens, things fall apart. Remember Genesis 8.21, such a big verse. The intentions of man's heart are wicked from youth. 
If you give a sinner a new technology, how long will it take him to figure out how to sin with that technology? Okay? You give a kid a stick, how long will it be till they're whacking someone else over the head with it? You give people bricks, how long will it be till they figure out how to sin with those bricks? Well, not very long, as we see here, uh, verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So there's a twofold plan here. Uh, we won't look at it too much, but verse 4 is, is written in, in the form of what's called a chiasm. So it means it comes from the letter X, where you've got stuff on the outside that matches and then stuff in the middle that matches. Let us build for ourselves a city, the beginning of the verse, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Those go together. And then the middle, a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Those go together. So we're going to look at, look at them one, one, one by one here. So let's, let's start with these first and these last parts. They want a city to stop their scattering. You can see where we are in our outline, verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They want to build a city to stop their scattering. Now that might sound innocent enough to us. What's so bad about that? Well... Genesis 9-1, God specifically told them to scatter. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, filling the earth meant having lots of babies. That's why it says be fruitful and multiply. But it also meant that they were going to have to spread out. You can't fill the earth just if you're all staying together in one spot. So this moving out, this spreading, this scattering. That was a part of God's plan. God wanted the planet to be filled with his images so that people could have dominion and rule over the earth like he intended. And so it seems pretty clear here that these people saying, let's build a city so we won't be scattered, they're directly opposing the plans of God. They're directly doing what the opposite of what God told Noah to do. They want to use their bricks to oppose the plan of God. Secondly, if you look in the middle of verse 4, remember the two middle parts in this verse, they want to build themselves a tower with its top in the heavens. And what do they say next? Let us make a name for ourselves. They want to use their bricks to show off. Again, we see this in the heart of children all the time. Look what I can do. I can do this. I can do that. It just comes out of us very naturally. They want to build a tower up to the heavens so that other people say, wow, did you hear what those people in Shinar did? They built a tower all the way up to the top of the heavens. Wow, they're great. Go see the Shinar skyscraper today. This is, this is awesome. They want to be famous. They want to boast. Did you see, do you see here that showing off, trying to engineer your own fame and influence did not begin with the creation of Instagram. These early people invented technology and the first thing their proud hearts want to do with it is show off and boast and brag by reaching for the skies. Just like Eve reaching up for the fruit so she could be like God, these people want to reach up for the heavens to make their own names great. And with that, we come to see the third major step in our passage, which is God's intervention. 
God intervenes. And he does it, we are going to look at three main aspects of the Lord's intervention. First, verse 5, the Lord's descent. And the Lord, notice this, just pay attention so carefully here. Verse 4, tower at the top to the heavens. Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Do you get the humor here? They want to build a tower up to the heavens and and God has to come down to see it. He has to come down low to see it. Even that phrase, children of man, which the children of man had built, it sounds deliberately patronizing, at least to me. Like, oh, look, they built a cute little tower. That's that's sort of the, the feeling here. It's deliberately putting them in their place. Despite their best efforts, they are way smaller than God. Nevertheless, despite how small they are, God is concerned. And we see that in verse 6, the Lord's concern. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, there's four statements the Lord makes here. They're one people. They have one language. This is only the beginning of what they do. And number four, nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. And we can see how the first two statements go together and the last two statements go together. We have to understand this first set of statements against the backdrop, or actually all four of these statements against the backdrop of Genesis 8.21. So they're all one people, one language, and there's nothing they won't be able to do if they keep working together. What's the problem with that? There would be no problem with that if the people were perfect and holy and righteous and sinless. So they all speak one language, and because they can all speak one language and work together, they can do whatever they want to do. What? That sounds great to me. Except Genesis 8.21. The intentions of their heart are wicked from youth. And so a bunch of wicked people being able to do whatever they want is actually a pretty scary thought, isn't it? It's, it reminds me similarly of here Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. The Lord keeps close tabs on his creation and on the the capacity of his creation. He knows what we're capable of, and he steps in to limit our capacity, to keep us from being as bad as we can be. And that's what he did in Genesis 3 when he kicked them out of the garden, and that's what he's doing here in Genesis 11. If they get off to a start like this, it's going to be really bad news. Now, it's interesting, as I reflected on this, we've been taught that earlier man was primitive and that we're super smart and advanced and we're so much better than than early man was and so why would god be so concerned about a bunch of stone age people making bricks god doesn't seem to have a problem with new york city or toronto so what's what's the big deal with with this we should remember once again the biblical story flips things around humanity started off high and has fallen quite far. These people lived for centuries. Think about Nimrod, who just went around building civilizations. 
Archaeology, by the way, too, backs this up. Archaeology is filled with ancient technologies that modern people are still trying to figure out. Do you know they had computers back hundreds of years before Christ came? They're mechanical computers. We're still trying to figure out how they work. We found what our best guess is batteries from in Baghdad, Babylonian batteries. We still are, some of the world's smartest scholars are still debating how they built the pyramids. We sure don't build things that last that long. Roman concrete lasts until the present day. Still haven't figured out Damascus steel, how they made it so hard. Like there's a lot that, that in all of our modern wisdom we can't figure out. I think even just based on the Bible alone, if we were to stand beside these early settlers of Shinar who are still so close to Noah, still so close to Adam, I think we would be profoundly humbled by their intelligence, their competence, and I think that we'd be terrified by their capacity for evil, especially given their long lifespans. Isn't it good that we know the worst people on this planet are only going to live a few decades? Can you imagine how terrifying it would be if someone like Vladimir Putin was expected to live for 800 years? So the Lord is right to have concern over what's going on here. So, number three, he takes action. This is, this is in verse 7 to 8. Verse 7, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. First, God doesn't explain why he wants to do this, but it's been pretty clear. In order to work together, you have to be able to speak together. And in fact, we saw that. Verse 3, Come, let us. Verse 4, Come, let us. Everything they do together begins with them speaking together. So if you can't talk together, you can't work together. It's interesting that verse 7 opens with these same words that the people of the city said. Verse 3, they said, come let us. Verse 4, come let us. And in verse 7, God says, come let us. I wonder if this is, again, a deliberate parody of the tower builders. Hey, let's do this. Hey, let's do this. Actually, let's do this. It certainly highlights the fact that when God says, come, let us do this, it actually happens, unlike, unlike the tower builders. It's an interesting question, who is God speaking to when he says, come, let us? Some suggest that God is speaking to the divine council, which basically means the angels in heaven. Others here see some evidence, just like in Genesis 1, where God says, let us make man in our image. This is an evidence of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit communicating amongst themselves. And that, that's the direction that I lean. I think we see here that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are communicating amongst themselves what they're going to do, just like how people talk amongst each other. So the three persons of the one God are doing the same, but at a much, much greater level. Regardless, the, picture, the big picture here is hard to miss. God is going to confuse their language so they can't work together so that this project that they've started won't be able to be finished. So let's look at our fourth step, the aftermath. And there's a few, there's a few stops we're going to make here. Number one, we see the people confused and scattered, verses 8 to 9. God's actions, unlike the people's, succeed. He confuses their language. 
And verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. And then verse 9 summarizes and repeats this. Therefore, its name was called, let's say Babel or Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Exact opposite of what they said. Well, let's, we don't want to be dispersed. God dispersed them. If they can't understand each other, they can't work together. And so they stop building the tower and they keep doing what God wanted them to do, which was spread out and fill the earth. They tried to oppose God's plans. It failed. They tried to band together. It failed. They tried to make a name for themselves. And the only name they got is Babel, which is a word play on the Hebrew word for confused. In other words, God wins. God wins. And we want to just pause and reflect on that for a moment. No attempts to oppose God's plans will ultimately succeed. God makes sure that what he wants to happen happens. And he thwarts whatever plan people make to get in his way. This is a big part of what it means for us to say that God is sovereign. God can do what he wants. And we can't stop him from doing what he wants. Psalm 33, 10 to 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people, people's The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. We get tied up in a knot sometimes with discussions about quote-unquote free will as if God owes it to let us do whatever we want. It's not how it works. God gets to do whatever he wants. That's part of what it means for him to be God. These people wanted to build a tower. God didn't want them to build a tower. Who wins? And they end up scattering just like God wanted them to. Our second step here, now we move a little bit beyond the passage here to the rest of the Bible. The second step here is the enduring challenge of Babylon. Because what we see here is that the story of Babel has a very important role in the unfolding story of the Bible. You've probably seen this so far in our series in Genesis is that all these things we're talking about, just they just keep going through the whole rest of the story. Have you ever noticed how Babel contains the same letters at the beginning as Babylon? It kind of sounds the same, and actually it's because it is the same. In Hebrew, Babel, Babylon are, are the exact same word. There's actually no difference. It's only different in English. We tr- Translators translate them differently because that's what we're used to. But in Hebrew, it's, it's the identical word. This is just Babylon, or Babylon is, is Babel. You can look at it either way. We know that Babylon, in this place, the plain of Shinar, went on to become the number one enemy of the people of God, particularly Nebuchadnezzar, took on the spirit of these early settlers. Nebuchadnezzar building big tower, a big statue of himself, exalting himself, demanding worship, looking at it and saying, look what my hands have built. And manifested the spirit of Babylon manifested in his hatred for the people of God. Nebuchadnezzar, the one who destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And that's why in the New Testament, Babylon or Babel, same word in, in, in the original language, continues to symbolize 
organized human opposition to God. So in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter refers to the city of Rome as Babylon because it had taken on the spirit of Babylon, people banding together to oppose God, to do their own thing. And that's why Babylon comes up again and again in Revelation. As a people, Revelation was written for the people in the first century. It's written for us too, but it meant something to them. And as they read about Babylon there, it's very likely that they would have thought of Rome. And it's not, as we read in Revelation, it's not that Babylon is, is actually going to be physically rebuilt in the Middle East someplace. Like some of you remember back in 1990, everyone was freaked out about that. It's that Babylon is this enduring symbol or representation of the world system united in opposition to God. Babylon represents people gathering to oppose God's plans and God's will and God's kingship. And that's why in the book of Revelation, God's final victory over evil is described as the fall of Babylon, the destruction of Babylon in Revelation 18. God finally removes all opposition to himself once and for all when Babylon falls. And what comes next in the book of Revelation? The marriage supper of the lamb, the Revelation 20, it's, 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 it's all there. So where is Babel or Babylon today? It's not the ruins in the Middle East. Babylon today is any place where people band together to oppose God by resisting his plans and making a name for themselves. Do we live in Babylon? Babylon is the world system. Babylon is everywhere. Babylon is Canada with its smug, polite hatred for God and his people. We should not be surprised to find ourselves being, as the people of God, to find ourselves being treated poorly by our country. Babylon has always been opposed to the people of God. Babylon has always hated the people of God. And yet we can rest in the comfort here that God's going to deal with Babylon. That's the message of the book of Revelation. Hard times are ahead. This is a call for the faithful endurance of the saints, but God wins. That's the message of of Revelation. All opposition to the Lord will be removed. Babylon will fall. The question for us is whose side do you want to stand on when the dust settles? So this is part of the major aftermath of, of of the Babel episode. The spirit of Babel lives on and it's everywhere in the world today and God's going to deal with it. So, a great way to put some of this into practice would be to read some of those parts in Revelation, like Revelation 18. It's actually there in your study guide. And, and I encourage you to, to, to do some digging into that this week. This, is, this will be very relevant to us in the coming years as it gets harder and harder to be faithful to the Lord Jesus here in Canada. And we find ourselves in the same spot that the people of God have been in throughout all of history waiting and groaning, how long, O Lord, and trusting in his promise that he is going to come and deal with our enemies. Third major fallout, or piece of aftermath, you could say, from from this story, is the future glory of peoples and languages. One of the most obvious pieces of, of, uh, one of the most obvious effects 
of, of what happened at Babel is that there's now thousands of languages in the world. These languages caused people to splinter off into groups that developed their own unique cultures and became defined and distinct from each other. So it's, it's, it's opposite again. It's not that you had different groups developing their own languages. You had different languages, and then you had groups develop around those languages. Babel is the ultimate reason for all the different tribes and languages and peoples and nations in the world today. It's all because of what happened here in Genesis 11. And yet God had a plan in this. God had a plan for the glory of his son. He had a plan for Christ to come and by his blood ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and to make them a kingdom and priests to our God that they may reign on the earth. The ultimate goal of Babel, the ultimate goal of what God did here in Genesis 11 was not just to stop them from building a tower. The ultimate goal, God's end game here, was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I've just read from Revelation 5, 9 to 10 and Revelation 7, 9 to 10 in these last minutes here. The goal of Babel is that Jesus will be glorified forever by a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational, multi-language redeemed humanity that he died to save and he is going to receive more glory for his saving work in saving and gathering this diverse group of people than if he had just died to save one people. Now, how is, how is it that that works? I was thinking about that this week. How, how is it that Jesus gets more glory for saving people from every tribe and language and people and nation than if the earth was just one language, like some planet in Star Wars, it's all just one people and he just saved them? Okay, what's, what's the, how does he get more glory? Well, here's, here's one answer to that. When a diverse group of people who are separated by the most basic human force of, in relationships with his language, which is language, you had a group of people who are separated from each other by language. When they gather together around someone, that makes a pretty loud statement that that someone is really, really important and more important than any other thing about them, including their language. Okay, do you see that? It is easy to gather people together around shared interests, around shared uh, language, around shared culture, even shared hobby, like food. And actually, many churches go that route by trying to like be a, have a niche little thing that people already have in common, and then they kind of gather around that thing that they've already got in common. And, we, and it's easy to do that, because people like being with people who are like them. People like being around people who speak their same language, have their same interests, or at their same stage of life, have their same relationship status. It's, that's a normal human thing to do. But when, the, when that diverse group of people who have 
everything different about them, gather together around Jesus, doesn't that show that Jesus is greater than anything else about them? He, he is so powerful and so worthy that he can pull the most different people together and bring them together in unity. Doesn't that show how great he is? Didn't we get a little taste of that here on Christmas Eve? Wasn't it beautiful to hear the story of Jesus and the, and the praises of Jesus being spoken and sung in German and Tagalog and French and Afrikaans and Dutch as well as English? Didn't Jesus receive more glory that night from a diverse group of people who are not all the same and yet are united in worship of our Savior who is big enough to bring us together despite our differences? Didn't Jesus receive more glory that way than if we were just all the same? And this was the plan. This was what was God, this is what the, God was ultimately after back here in Babel, was showing the power and the worth of his son and his, his ability to draw people together because their love for Jesus is bigger than anything else about them. That was the goal behind his judgment here at Babel. And God used human sin to accomplish that plan. Just like he used human sin when Jesus was crucified on the cross. God does it all the time. The wickedness of Babel did not catch the Lord off guard. It was a part of his plan that his son might be worshipped forever by all peoples and languages. So, we get to our fourth stop this morning. The Great Commission questions before us today. How do we get to Revelation 5 and 7? How do we get to the redeemed throng of people from every tribe and language worshiping the Son gathered around Jesus? How do we get there? Well, the answer is that the people of Jesus obey the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, or we could say peoples, same, same basic word. Those, those different peoples, they speak different languages, though, don't they? So if we're going to go to the nations and make disciples of all nations, then we're going to have to somehow cross those barriers to get the good news to those people for whom Jesus died who don't speak our language. How does that happen? Sometimes the Lord does this in a miraculous way, like at Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was Babel in reverse. This is where you've got to see the whole Bible is one big story. Babel, you had a bunch of people speaking the same language, confused and scattered. Pentecost, you have a bunch of people who speak different languages, all of a sudden being able to understand one message and brought together, gathered around the sun. And that was through God giving people the ability to speak in a language that they hadn't learned. There are times that God still does this. I witnessed it once as a child where God gave someone the ability to understand a language that they had not learned for a few minutes so they could translate a gospel message for some people who were there. That's the intention behind the, the gift of tongues. It's not about dozens of people all speaking at the same time with nobody having a clue what's going on. In fact, that type of practice that some of you have seen and I've, I've been a part of many times, you've got dozens of people or many people all going at the same time, no one has a clue what's going on. 
First Corinthians fourteen twenty seven to twenty eight specifically prohibits that from happening. First Corinthians fourteen twenty seven twenty eight says this is a church where tongues was operating. It said two at most three people, and if there's no interpreter, be quiet. That's what it says. That's the word of God. So if you've been in those environments and you're wondering what to make of it, you just know that's that's disobedience to the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, we can see in the Bible, the gift of tongues is always about real human languages. And the goal is always that people might understand what's being said for the sake of the gospel or being built up in the gospel. And I have no problem saying that God is free to cause that to happen at any point he wants to. Anytime he wants, God can do that. But most of the time, that's not how he does things. Most of the time, the way that the languages of the earth hear the gospel is by someone going and learning that language, crossing the cultural barrier, and sharing the good news with them. Some of you in this room know the difficulty of language learning. My sister is struggling away with Romanian right now. It's hard. It's part of the aftermath of Babel. And it's a cost that is completely worth it because the difficulty of learning another language and getting integrated into another culture is simply a reflection of the worthiness of Christ who is worth the worship of some of the people who live in that culture. Do you, see, do you see that? It's all about the worth of Jesus who died to purchase the worship of every language on earth. So what does that mean for us today? Well, for some of you, it means that you need to move to another country and learn another language and bring the gospel to another nation. That's what it means, right? We don't, right away, we want to, well, not everyone needs to be called to be missionaries. Yeah, but some people do. And maybe some of you are in this room right now. Sharman's headed to the Philippines here soon. What Sharman's doing should not be a once-in-a-generation event for us as, as a church. It should be normal for us to send away people to go bring the gospel to people who wouldn't get the gospel otherwise. This should just be a normal part of our life together as a church. And maybe, maybe the next person to go is in this room right now. In fact, they should be. And maybe right now, something's going on in your heart and thinking, man, could, could that be me? Could I do that? And the answer is probably yes. And don't let fear hold you back. Remember that Jesus calls us to take our crosses and follow him, which means that being a Christian means being willing to go anywhere with Jesus and for Jesus. So why not open your hands today and say, Lord, could it be me? Why not? Now, at the same time, we know that for every person who goes, they need a support team. They need a ground team. They need a ground crew. And maybe that's your role. I know many of you in this room have played that part in being ground crew for people who go to the front lines. And that's, that's a really important role, giving your prayers and your money and, your, and, 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 and many other ways to support them as they go. But if that's the case, if you're ground crew for someone who's going to the front lines, that doesn't mean that you don't need to have any heart for the nations. Have you noticed that the nations are coming to us here in Nipawin? How do you respond when you encounter someone who is very obviously not from Canada or not from around here? How do you respond when you see someone who looks different than you, who speaks a different language than you, who eats different food than you? It is normal and natural for us to feel uncomfortable in those types of environments. 
It is normal and natural for us to feel more safe with people who look like us, but just because something is natural doesn't mean it's good, especially in light of the Great Commission. And this morning, I want all of us, so whether you're someone who needs to go or whether you're someone who needs to be part of the ground crew for the people who go, we need to hear the call to reach out to the nations and the languages right here in Nippon. Let's make this really practical. What goes on in your heart and mind when you see a new business open up in town that is very clearly being run by someone who's not from Canada? The decor, the signage, it gives it away. You know they're not from around here. What goes on in your heart and your mind? Do you smirk smugly? Do you make jokes about the decor or the bad English and the signs? Do you think, I'd never step foot inside of that place? Do you just think like a Canadian and get all worried about what immigration is going to do to our country? Or do you have a great commission impulse? A great commission, Holy Spirit wrought impulse to say, man, I want to go in there. Even if that means just buying something small, even if it's a waste of money, just to be friendly, just to try to understand them. Maybe even start a relationship in which I can show and tell them the love of Christ. That's the great commission impulse that should be in us. When we see the different, the other, that we're drawn to that because we've got something so much bigger than politics to care about, we've got the great commission. So we could ask those questions. I, I talk about a business, but we, we could talk about all kinds of things. When you're at the checkout line and when you're going to the, the, the restaurant or when you get to hire someone, whatever it is. The big idea here is that when we encounter someone who's different from us, followers of Jesus can't do the natural thing of of withdrawing into our comfort zones. We need to do the Great Commission thing, which is to reach out to the languages and the peoples of the earth because Jesus died for people from every nation language. He's worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. And how does he get that? We speak the message of the gospel. That's the only way. It's the only way that it happens. You might feel uncomfortable doing this. Well, guess what? I don't mean to sound snarky here, but those people who have come here from another country, I imagine that every day feels uncomfortable for them. And if you're not First Nations, then your ancestors were once immigrants from another country. And who said anything about comfort? when you've got a cross on your back and you're following the bloody footsteps of a savior, who said anything about comfort? If we were into comfort, we wouldn't be following Jesus. So this morning, would you ask Jesus to give you a heart for the nations? And for some of you, that's going to mean going. It might even mean dying. And for all of us, it means saying, Lord, what do you want me to do as a part of your plan? to bring glory to your son through the nations of the earth. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give us a moment to be quiet, and then we're going to sing a prayer. May the peoples praise you, O God. Lord, give us a heart for the nations, please. We thank you for what you did at Babel. We thank you for the beauty of the different cultures in our world, the different languages in our world, the different tones and colors of skin in our world the different flavors and foods that different cultures have developed, it is, it is so much more beautiful than if we were all the same. 
And all of this, Lord God, points upwards to the worthiness of Jesus who deserves the worship of the nations. And Lord, give each one of us a heart that Jesus would receive the reward of his suffering, that each of us may play the part in this great mission that you'd have us play. Give us that heart, O Lord. Amen.